This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest today is Catherine Haig, who's the CEO and founder of Female Funders, and she's an authority on angel investing and on the hardware funding landscape. She was the co-founder of ShopLocket, which she sold to PCH a few years ago, and um, she is also a valued O'Reilly author of a of a forthcoming book called Funded, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Raising Your First Round. And at the end of March, she's going to be running a uh, an online live training for anyone who wants to learn about seed funding called Introduction to Seed Financing for Entrepreneurs, Everything You Need to Raise Money for Your Startup. Uh, we'll include a link to the online training in the show notes. It takes place March 30th, and um, it promises to be fantastic. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you guys for having me today. I'm really excited to be here, and it's been uh, so much fun working with the O'Reilly folks uh, since my time uh, at ShopLock and PCH, uh, and now working with you uh, on Funded, which has been a wonderful experience. Awesome. So uh, tell us um, what's what's hot in the world of uh, seed financing these days. Well, right now, I think we have an unprecedented number of companies out there trying to raise seed funding. And luckily, that number of entrepreneurs has been matched with tons of accelerator programs that are opening up around the world. Um, But I think the latest trend that we're starting to see is that while we're funding all of these seed stage, pre-seed stage companies, um, a lot of them are having struggles getting to that next round as well, to that series A stage, or maybe it's a larger seed round. So I think it's really important that entrepreneurs start thinking of their seed round as more than just that first capital in, but as probably the capital that they need to actually get to a break-even point where they can start determining their own destiny. So what, what, do, you, what do you think, what are people going for right now in terms of, of round size for seed rounds? Because I mean, I know that there's some kind of, there's a bit of crossover between you know, large seeds and small series A's happening at the minute, especially in the hardware space. Yeah, I'd say that there's a difference between what is actually a pre-seed or seed round and what an entrepreneur likes to call a seed round. Often there's a lot of benefit for an entrepreneur in calling around uh, an earlier stage than it actually is because it changes how investors look at your company. So even if you're raising, you know, two, four million dollars, a lot of entrepreneurs will say, oh, well, it's still my seed round, just so that investors aren't expecting more from them and their company. When real... Well, it also sounds more impressive, right? You're like, (laughs) whoa, a four million dollar seed round. These guys are serious. Well, and so the smartest investors know that this isn't actually seed money. And if you are still raising it as seed money at two, four... $5 $5 million, there's actually probably more likely a problem. Like, why not call that your Series A? Is it that you really are so early still that you're only going to be using mm. this money for seed-type purposes, like finding out who your market is and uh, doing some initial sales? When I'd say the typical seed round should actually probably be more between 
500,000 and $1.5 million, maybe $2 million on the very high end. And some people are, are calling pre-seed or um, rounds as being those that are less than 500,000. Um, but Mark Andreessen actually has a great tweet on this topic saying that investors aren't fooled when you come in raising, I think his number is around $4 million for your seed round or your second seed round. They, they know what's happening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, pull everything up and replant round. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Plow it under. Yeah, this is an interesting issue. Um and and it it's related a little bit to kind of the slowdown that we're that we're seeing in some of the funding environment. Uh, people are saying, you know, investors won't won't just underwrite a uh, you know, a crazy idea anymore. There has to be a business plan behind it. Uh, they want to see that it's feasible. But uh, you just mentioned that one of the purposes of getting seed funding is to like go through the process of figuring out what your market is and, and you know, nailing down a business plan. So what, how fully baked do investors want to see uh, the startup before they'll consider a seed round? I think a lot of the misunderstanding that founders have around this is that they expect when they hear a found, an investor saying, you know, I want to see a product, I want to see the market, it seems like, wow, that's such a high bar, that's what I need the seed funding for. But the truth is, what they really want is not your final product and your final market, they want to see a proof of concept, which might be an MVP, it might be a prototype, and they want to see that you've done some validation that people actually want what you're making. And you can do that with beta testers, you can do that with crowdfunding, you can do that through you know, research or pre-sales. There's lots of ways that you can do it without necessarily reaching that final stage that you want to reach through your seed funding. So I think that is really important for entrepreneurs to realize that while there is this bar and it's very real, your investors do want to see more than they've ever wanted to see before. The reason they want to see that is because it's easier than ever to create prototypes, to create um, you know, an app in a weekend. You can prove a lot without money, things that weren't possible to prove out 10 years ago. Oh, interesting. So it's really that the homework is getting easier to do. So they expect you to, to, to do exactly. your homework. It's sort of like this baseline that the investors have. Are you smart enough to use the existing tools to prove this out to me? Or are you just reliant on this money because you're not, you know, creative enough or scrappy enough to figure out other ways of doing it? Oh, interesting. By the way, uh, in, in describing the size of a, um, of a potential market. What are what is your feeling about the use of the maximum addressable market metric? I've heard some ridiculous ones. I think the last thing an investor wants to hear is, you know, this is the size of the market and if we just get 1% of this market, then we're going to be a gazillion dollar company. Um, because if yeah. you, it doesn't work like that and the way you build your company is from the bottom up, it's not as a percentage of a larger market. Um, but at the same time, investors do want to see what that larger market is because it shows the type of companies you're competing against. It shows the potential size of the market. But from there, they don't want to hear you say, and we're going to get 5% of this market in 10 years. Like that, that sounds crazy. When you talk about traction yeah. and growth, they want to see that from a bottom-up perspective. So, you know, we have this many customers, we got them through these different marketing channels, and our growth is going to look like this in six months, 12 months, two years, um, and we're ultimately going to be this size. As opposed to doing your actual traction from a top-down perspective, which just ultimately doesn't end up making any sense to anyone, uh, and you don't even know where the numbers are coming from. Right. I, I, it's nevertheless something that seems to make it into every demo yes. day presentation. <laughs> well, 
I've some I've sometimes sat there and like written down the addressable <laughs> markets that people are handing out, and it'll be like a food startup, and they'll get up there and say the American food market <laughs> is worth one point six trillion dollars, and it's like what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I mean I think that the ones that do it the best are the ones that can talk about those big markets, but it's so specific that you really get why that market number makes sense to this particular company. Um, So for someone that was going after, maybe they're doing a delivery service model, and they're starting out with the San Francisco market, for them talking about the existing food delivery models, or the size of that market in San Francisco makes sense, right? But all of a sudden, if you get so broad and you're coming so many industries that are detached from what you do, that's when it starts to be like, okay, well, this it's not relevant information anymore. So let's, um, you know, walk us through a little bit um, for for the listeners who are kind of like uh, giving some thought to raising money or to a to a concept. Just walk us through some of the the, the first few steps that that an entrepreneur might take if they're thinking about, you know, going after um, the the you know private funding in the next few months or in the next year. You have your company idea, you're starting to get your mind around a business model. What do you need to sort of take the first the first leap? So my first recommendation to anyone considering funding is to just understand what getting funding for your startup means and whether venture financing, so equity funding for your company is actually the best financing model. Not all companies are, first of all, even venture backable. You need to be a very high growth business model in order to be able to justify venture financing. And even if you do fit into that category, you have to be willing to, as an entrepreneur who started this to sort of write their own story and define their own destiny, you have to be willing to take on investors. People are going to be stakeholders in your business. They're going to have opinions about how you run things. You might have a board of directors. You might even eventually lose control of that board of directors. Is that something that you're Mm -hmm. willing to do? And do you realize that you're going to be diluted in terms of your ownership, which is going to affect your ultimate you know, ability to make money on an exit? Have you considered that there's other non-dilutive ways that you could fund this, whether that's crowdfunding or maybe it's taking a loan? I think that people often think, well, TechCrunch is writing about funding or my friend's company raised funding. It's sexy. It's cool. I better just, you know, do this because it's the right thing for a startup to do without really thinking about what it means to take on venture funding uh, and what long-term effects that's going to have on you and your company. Yeah, dilution is a really good point here. I, I mean, how much how much equity you know would a typical funder expect to walk out of the seed round still holding? Um, well, so it of course depends on the number of founders and everything like that. But I'd say you'd expect to give up ten to thirty percent of your company per round. Um, so whether mm-hmm. you're giving up ten percent or thirty percent really depends on your negotiating ability. So how hot is your startup? How hot is the round? Um, How far along are you? What types of investors are you bringing in? Um, But generally 10 to 30% is about what you'll give up. And you're going to continue to give up about that same percentage every round of financing. And you might ask, okay, well, does it matter how much I'm raising? And the funny answer is no. Whether you're raising $500,000 or $1.5 million or $5 million, you're still probably going to give up between 10 and 30%. Um, which sounds a little bit bizarre, but it's more about ownership uh, percentage when the investors are buying as opposed to the the amount of money being raised. And, and also, if you do it right, like even if your personally owned percentage goes down, if things are going well, 
even after the dilution, your overall value of your stake will will go up because of the growth of the business. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate objective. Like you should only be taking in money that you think is going to help grow the business. And the only reason that you would give up any equity is because you believe that that money coming in and that percentage you're giving up um, is going to actually result in the entire pie growing so that you do ultimately, as you said, have more uh, of an ownership stake uh, in terms of value over time. Uh, let's 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 talk about some of these non-dilutive approaches too. Uh, you mentioned uh, crowdfunding. Um, you could do it with debt. Do you do you see a lot of uh, you know early stage startups raising you know business loans from banks or, or other you know debt investors? I definitely wouldn't recommend it unless you already had revenue, fairly reliable revenue, which some early stage companies do. Um, so if you know that you'll be able to pay off this loan with revenue coming in, then I think that loans can actually be a great way to finance a company. But for an early stage, high risk, unpredictable revenue company, not only will you find it hard to even find a bank willing to give you a loan, but of course, then it's relatively risky as to whether you're going to be able to pay that off. And in very high risk scenarios, sometimes banks will even ask you to give a personal guarantee on that loan, which means that if you know everything goes to hell, you're actually going to be personally liable for that loan that you took. Um, so for a lot of more high risk ventures, definitely commercial loans have a lot of downsides. There are more and more banks offering startup friendly loans, let's say, where it's a better mm -hmm. interest rate, you can pay it off over a longer period of time, but still that risk of you know, never being able to pay it off potentially um, does exist. Now, we're, it also seems like we're seeing kind of a middle ground approach here too, a form of like equity investment that you're able to pay off rather than getting forced into a big exit. Bryce Roberts, who is a principal at OATB, has started a, a venture called Indie VC that uh, you know, lets startups buy out Indie VC's investment by giving them a share of cash flow rather than um, you know, a big payout on, on exit. Have you, have you seen a lot of this kind of thing or any, any thoughts on how those arrangements often turn out for entrepreneurs? I think what they're doing is a really interesting model, but I'd say that they're still very early. I think they're probably one of the few that are, are trying out that model. I haven't seen it being used fairly aggressively yet, at least in the market. You see things like what Kickstarter is doing, changing into a B Corp and more and more companies really wanting to be long-term companies, not just companies that exit within five to 10 years, which is what your venture capitalists will expect. And I think that these decisions are going to become more and more common for a segment of entrepreneurs. So I think we do need funding sources that are, are going to have more optionality for a founder to provide liquidity events than simply we have to sell the company. Um, right now, what we've been seeing more so is that investors, especially your earliest investors, will simply take their exit on a future round of financing. So if you raise oh. another round, they'll be part of a secondary offering that sells some of their shares to the new investors. Um, and that's how they take their early exit. Um, so I think up until now, that's been the most common way to give your early investors their liquidity. But we'll probably see more uh, different models for, for how that might work in the future. Is that not seen as a black mark for the, um, for, for the company if the early investors are, are taking exits on later rounds? It's generally not seen as too much of a black mark because it's happening at the exact same time that a new group of investors are putting more capital in. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, usually your seed investors have been in there for a couple years, if not a few years, and it's understood 
that they've probably actually already seen the growth in their capital you know, the most that they might mm-hmm. actually see. Uh, a seed investor might have already seen 10 or 20x in their investment. And at the current valuation, you know, maybe they'll get another 2x. But that's okay. not really what they're interested in as a seed investor. It makes more sense for them to get their money out and make more early stage investments. Whereas the 2, 3, mm-hmm. 4x might make a lot of sense for a Series C type investor. Um, I mean, Peter Thiel ended up cashing out a ton of his Facebook stock when they IPO'd. And yes, he did hold on for many rounds, but um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't be able to cash out without everyone being like, oh my God, what's happening? But Peter Thiel being an early right. investor, everyone understands you know, he's waited his <laughs> X number of years for his return. It's, it's time for him <laughs> to move on. Right. What about founders taking cash out? That's a little bit uh, more controversial. I'd say that to a point, it's a good thing. Um, because one of the biggest worries that investors have when investing in first-time entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that aren't um, you know, wealthy in their own right already is that they might be more willing to accept a smaller acquisition offer um, or, you know, worst case, take a great job offer because they're personally so financially strapped. Um, a small exit opportunity might be life-changing money for an entrepreneur, um, but not seen as an accept- a success to their investor. So by giving entrepreneurs mm-hmm. the opportunity to make a little bit of money by taking something off the table early on, you can make them uh, financially sustainable and uh, you know comfortable in their own lives enough that they can say no to exit opportunities um, that they probably would have said yes to um, before they got a little bit of money off the table. What's the number for if you think you should raise VC? I mean, I was reading a, an article with Ben Einstein from Bolt the other day, and he was saying that, um, you know, I think that I think that the general commonly accepted knowledge is that VCs want to see you making your company making $100 million within the first five years. Is that is that accurate, would you say? I think that that makes sense because, you know, if you're looking at an exit, which is on a, you know, multiple of 10, then, you know, you're a unicorn, you're a billion dollar company if you're making $100 million a year. And that's probably where that number comes from. And if you're going to be raising from fairly large VCs, so think funds over $150 million or something like that, then yes, you do need to be targeting at at least 100 million in revenue in order to be that unicorn that they need in order to make money on their fund. Uh, If you're targeting micro VCs or angel investors, you don't necessarily have to have the same huge unicorn exit to be a good deal for them. As Dave McClure likes to call them centaurs and ponies. So his centaurs are companies that have $100 million valuations and his ponies are ones that have $10 million valuations. And you can still, as an early stage investor, make money off of those. But, you know, Kleiner, Sequoia, Andreessen, they're not going to be interested. Um, So as an entrepreneur, you need to decide, you know, how big do you think this can get and how ambitious are you? And that's going to determine your type of VC. And it's also as a founder, I know hard to look at your numbers and be like, okay, well, this is totally going to make $100 million in five years, because there's so many factors (laughs) at play. Um, But really what an investor wants to see when you're building out those projections is that you've thought it through, that you know the numbers that affect your growth, you know how they interplay with one another, that you know 
what it would take to scale your business model as it is today to a company that could make that much money. So when you're building out those projections, realize that everyone on all sides of the table realize that they're complete bullshit and that you have no idea what it's actually going to be, but they're trying to (laughs) get a sense of your thinking. They want to know how you look at your business, whether you understand those core metrics, and then do you have that growth ambition? I see. I see. Okay. So, so once you've, so once you've decided this is a good thing to do and you've decided you're going to go out and and raise some money, what are the steps in that process? Yeah. So once you decide you want to go out and raise money, you are very much not ready to start taking meetings. Um, There's a whole bunch of different things that you need to do to prepare for the fundraising trail. Uh, First off, I'd say you need to make sure that you have the product that we talked about earlier and that initial proof of market traction without those two things, even if it's just a very early product or prototype and crude proof that you have an actual market, you're going to need those things before you start raising. Then once you have those, you need to start putting together a few different materials. You need your pitch deck, which is that 10 to 20 slide deck that you're going to be sending all the investors and giving in meetings. Um, You're going to need those financial projections that we just talked about showing your growth potential And you're going to need to start putting together uh, what's often called a data room. So this is all of the things an investor might ask you in the due diligence process from your metrics to all of the contracts you have with your contractors and your employees to your financials, really just getting a jump on that due diligence process so that when an investor asks you for something, you're not scrambling trying to pull everything together or worse yet, realizing big flaws in your reporting or in your company while you're on the fundraising trail. So you need to get all of those things together and then you need to build out an investor pipeline. And a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of bouncing from investor to investor. So they set up one meeting, then they go to the next meeting and then the next meeting um, and just sort of, you know, get no's all along the line uh, and wonder why it didn't work out. And what you actually need to do is treat it like a sales funnel. You need to get 50 to 100 investors on a list, set up meetings with those investors through uh, connections with your network, usually through uh, a warm introduction. Um, And then when you have those 50 to 100 meetings, uh, you want to have them all roughly around the same amount of time. So you create this sense of urgency and competition among the investors. And your goal there is to get someone to be your lead. Um, who's going to give you the first commitment to your round. And then you want to give everyone else a fear of missing out on this amazing opportunity. And you're moving towards then filling out the round. Uh, You'll go through due diligence, which you've already prepped for. And that whole process you could probably do in two to three months from the investor pipeline through to closing the round. But it's usually recommended that you have a minimum of six months of cash in the bank account before you start raising so that you don't get caught um, you know, with just two months of cash left and the investors know it uh, and you lose all negotiation power. It always takes way longer than you think it's going to take to raise money too, right? Like, I mean, you know, you can go and have a good, you can go and have a good meeting with someone and feel very confident that they're about ready to get their checkbooks out. But then you realize that the actual, no matter what people say, you don't have anything until the checkbook is gotten out. And that can actually be a bit more tricky than first impressions in a meeting of that sounds vaguely positive might might lead one to believe. Exactly. Nothing is a yes except for yes and someone writing a check. A lot of times entrepreneurs fail to hear no. So sometimes investors feel really awkward about telling you they don't want to invest. So they say that um, they need more information or to get back to them in a couple months. All of those different things are actually someone saying no. 
And you as an entrepreneur need to hear that and move on. Um, because like you said, it's going to take a lot more meetings and a lot more time than you initially thought. And unlike Shark's Tank, uh, it's not going to just take one meeting to close that sale. You need to build up relationships with these investors over time. So even if you're not fundraising, you should already start building these relationships so that when it comes time to fundraise, um, as I think Mark Schuster said, you are a line, not a dot. You're not just this one data point that an investor is looking at. You're multiple data points where they can see how you've progressed over time. And that's what they're actually going to invest in, not this just singular dot in time. As you're going through this process of talking with, you know, your first cluster of potential investors and trying to get them to commit, are you just going to go ahead and and take whatever deals have the best financial terms or, you know, how how important is it to end up with like a really prestigious lead investor or investors who have, you know, deep expertise in your market and who can generate contacts and and early business, you know, customers for you? Yeah, I think there's a couple things to to think about here. Um, one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make is that they over-optimize on terms and they take money from the wrong investors. Um, the worst types of investors are people that are not just going to be silent investors, but they're actually going to be actively harmful. Um, so whether that's making it harder for you to run your business or sabotaging future rounds or uh, providing bad advice, whatever that might be, you want to avoid those investors at all costs. And you can do that by talking to previous companies they've invested in, um, looking on sites like The Funded, which talk about uh, the track records of different investors. Um, but let's say that you are past that. It's not that you're going to be getting money from, you know, a terribly harmful investor. It's the optimization between, you know, an okay investor and that super prestigious investor. Um, I'd say that if you could get a super prestigious investor to be your lead, that's pretty incredible because it's going to drastically change how easy it is for you to fill up the rest of the round. It's going to be, you know, a great a great dynamic uh, for the rest of the negotiation. But then beyond that, I think that the name brand of the investor is not the most important thing. It's, it's some of those secondary things that you said, you know, how relevant are they uh, in terms of connections in your industry? How much do you really get along with this individual? Is it someone that you want to be effectively married to for the duration of your company? You know, someone's prestige or the name brand of their firm isn't going to make up for all of those things. So um, once you've decided someone's not a harmful investor and you already have the right people at the table to make this work, you're really looking for that personal dynamic and their particular relevance to you and your company. And those would be the, the main factors. And what about so, you know, at some point, a lot of entrepreneurs find it helpful to have investors who have deep expertise in their target market. You know, if you're doing like oil field technology, you know, you want some investors with really good connections to, um, you know, to, to oil field companies. But is that really important at the seed stage or is that more of a concern, you know, with a series A and series B? I think it's really important at the seed stage because that's when some of those connections can have a huge impact on your company. But at the same time, I think a mistake that I made as an entrepreneur was often, you know, thinking that you were going to get a lot more value out of advisors or introductions or investors than in practice you're actually going to get. Um, you're just one person in their portfolio. Um, you, know, you might even be able to get some of those introductions without them being an investor or an advisor. So I would say don't overvalue the connections you think someone can bring to the table. More likely their name brand in the industry is what's going to provide the value for you. because. Mm -hmm. 
life's busy. As entrepreneurs, you have to reach out to hundreds of people to make anything work. So if you overvalue some of those introductions, sometimes you can be disappointed with the results. I like to sort of think about anything an investor does as being added value. A lot of investors will like to sell you a bill of goods on how helpful and how amazing they're going to be. And if you're building that into, you know, the deal terms and giving them a discount because you think you're going to get all this in the future, you might just be building yourself up for disappointment. Pitfalls. If if you want to learn about all the pitfalls, uh, by the way, quick plug, you should sign up for Catherine's online training, which takes place March 30th, 2016, called Introduction to Seed Financing for Entrepreneurs. There will be a link in the episode notes, but also uh, if you just Google, you know, Catherine Haig seed funding O'Reilly, you'll find it right there. So our next segment is what we call click spiral. And it's where each of us brings in one uh, topic that's been, you know, absorbing too much of our time on the internet lately. And we discuss it and perhaps cause you, the listener, to spend too much time on it on the internet. If you have something that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, um, something that will that will waste David's and my time, just email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com and we'll take a look at it. So uh, um, why don't we begin with uh, with our guest, Catherine? What's what's been on your mind lately or in your browser tabs? Well, recently I've been doing a lot of research around uh, new SEC regulations that are starting to come into effect uh, right now, allowing non-accredited investors to start investing in startups. Um, so this is something that has really restricted how startups could raise money for decades already, um, where only accredited investors, whether it was through AngelList or SeedInvest or Funders Club or really even your offline investments, accredited investors are the only ones that could actually invest in your startup. And this has been something that the SEC has been working on changing for the last few years. And officially this fall, the regulations changed. Now anyone can start participating in equity crowdfunding deals. And that's starting to take effect on some equity crowdfunding platforms right now. And I've just been digging through everyone's thoughts on how this is going to change the investing world, how it's not going to change the investing world, whether this is just the same as Kickstarter. So that's really been occupying a lot of my time these days. So so an accredited investor is like, is is what? I mean, what, what does that mean to be an, an accredited investor? An accredited investor uh, is someone that has either a net worth over a million dollars or they make personally over $200,000 a year or with their spouse, they make over $300,000 a year. So it's always been a fairly high bar to be an accredited investor. Uh, I think the stats are that there's about 4 million accredited investors um, by the net worth standard here in the U.S., um, so changing it so that non-accredited investors can start angel investing uh, is something that's going to broaden the number of people that can angel invest hugely. So I guess I guess the original reasoning behind that rule about the accredited investors thing is it basically just like you have lots of money, therefore you must know how to take care of money. So you're probably not going to you're less likely to get taken advantage of in an investing situation. Yeah, I think it has something to do with sophistication, but it's also the belief that you have enough money that you can afford to lose it in startups. And what's happening with the new regulations for non accredited investors, it's not that they can just invest whatever amount of money, there are restrictions on amounts and the types of information that need to be provided. Um, but those restrictions are much, much less than they used to be. So while it's not going down to zero in terms of what you have to provide a non-accredited investor, it is starting to open up the door for non-accredited investors to start doing some investing for equity, similar to what they've already been able to do uh, for rewards on platforms like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. 
So do you think it is going to be just a flood of money that has no idea what it's doing? Or is this a positive in your in your view? I think it's going to be a little bit of both. So part of it is going to be that a lot of people are going to you know come into this excited and probably lose some money initially uh, as we're figuring out how these systems work. Um, but I think that's very similar to how things worked with the first people that started backing things um, on reward-based crowdfunding platforms. Uh, you know, some people didn't ship, some people did ship, sometimes the product wasn't as good as you were expecting. And I think we're going to see a lot of those growing pains with equity crowdfunding as well. Um, but I think that the regulations will continue to adapt. And I think that the platforms will continue to get smarter about how they help people show their investment opportunities and make decisions. Cool. We'll include some links to um, non-accredited investment and its its uh, implications and people who are writing about it in the show notes, uh, which you'll find at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. David, what is your what is your click my spiral? Click spiral my, my click spiral this week is a good one. It's a it's an original one. It was I was staying up too late and reading the Internet too much. And I ended up falling down the Wikipedia hole of popcorn. I learned a lot about popcorn this past what? one night this past <laughs> week. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to lay I'm going to lay some popcorn related facts on you guys. All right. You're going to see Bring and understand the, the real interesting world of popcorn. First of all, I learned that the uh, that uh, the pop, the, like the little individual kernels of popcorn are known in the industry as flakes. So that's actually the proper huh. word. We call it a popcorn flake. Hmm. Also, there are two main shapes of popcorn flakes. One is called butterfly or snowflake, and the other one is called mushroom. So you know how there's like the little spindly ones that are the softer ones? Those are the, those are the butterfly ones. And then the uh -huh. round ones are the mushroom ones. And apparently the mushroom flakes are much more prized in industry because they, they ship better and they pack well because they're, they're tougher and harder. Uh -huh. And so it's like a desirable thing. Also within the corn husbandry or whatever you call it. <laughs> um, to, are you going to add this to LinkedIn? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, apparently there are, there are types of popcorn which, which are being bred, hybrids that can produce 100% butterfly flakes or 100% mushroom type flakes. No kidding. However, they still have not yet been able to commercialize a 100% mushroom flake breed. Although um, in Iowa, at I think it was University of Iowa, in 1998 actually were able to demonstrate a breed which can produce 100% mushroom type flakes, although it has not yet been able to be commercialized. Also, according to Wikipedia, growing conditions and popping environment can also affect the <laughs> butterfly to mushroom ratio. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so so um, is it like a stochastic thing? Like the the you know a a, um, a kernel, excuse me, a flake might manifest itself as a mushroom or a butterfly, depending on like how it's heated in the moment. Yeah, no, it says that it says that there's um some of them are you know the the conditions do affect it, but apparently it's kind of a genetic thing because of the way that popcorn popping works, which is also interesting. The way that popcorn popping works is is it's actually the oil and the water inside of the kernel get really hot and turn the water into steam and then this like uh -huh. causes the entire um endosperm of the entire inside of the seed to turn into a gelatin as the as the outside kernel pops due to the pressure and it actually is like completely liquid and then it explodes outward and solidifies in like a fraction of a second so it like goes Whoa. through this like crazy phase transition situation right how right. did this popcorn um, spiral start for you i don't remember <laughs> I was on Wikipedia and you know one one thing leads to another and before you know it you're, and you're a popcorn expert. selections on on Google Books from uh Specialty Corn Second Edition by Arnold R Hallower. <laughs> um but anyway uh so yeah so that that was mine um 
No. That's incredible. Can you <laughs> no, beat that, John? Popcorn, right? I, I've gained a new yeah, appreciation what, what, for popcorn. Right? Uh, what, what's yours? What's yours? What, what you got? Uh, it, it, it's always entertaining when things go awry with stock photos. We've seen a little bit of this in the current election cycle where um, Marco Rubio ran an ad that uh, that used the skyline of Vancouver to represent like an American city full of hopes and dreams. And uh, Donald Trump used uh, footage of of what the ad claimed was the Mexican border that was actually taken in Morocco. And Ted Cruz used um, uh, an ad that had video footage of um, an adult actress uh, and and became embarrassed and and pulled it down. Um, but but in particular, there's one variety of stock photo mishap that I've been aware of for a little while, uh, and 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 it is the the use of the same stock photo by different products or different competitors, uh, because it it turns out that um, you know you think of like the kind of stock photo that that like a bank would use to uh, to advertise online banking, and it's like an attractive couple you know lying on top of plush white bed sheets on a laptop yeah, yeah, and exactly. smiling at their laptop. And like laughing. Right? <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> laughing at their laptop because they're spending their Saturday morning with their like mugs of cozy coffee doing their online banking through the convenience of Chase or Bank of America or whatever. Um, so so I've been like searching for for duplicate stock photos. And, uh, you know, you, you find a lot of them in ads. But one that an area that I hadn't thought of is book covers. There are a lot of like genre fiction book covers that use duplicate stock photos because, you know, the publishers that publish stuff like romance novels and horror novels and vampire novels just churn these things out with minimal design uh, and, and you know, buy stock photos of the back of a of a little girl like holding a teddy bear and gazing off into the into the horizon, into a field or something. So I, I've, I, there's surprisingly little of this on the internet. So my click spiral was actually kind of in vain um, searching for this stuff. But I, I did find a few and, uh, and enjoyed them very much. And we'll, we'll put links in the show notes. But it, it, it's something that, I, um, that, that I've been aware of for a little while because Wall Street Journal published a great article about it uh, in 2006. And um, since then, I've had my eye out. And I've actually myself contributed a small handful of photos to iStockphoto to sell as stock photos. None of them have people in them, but the, because when you photograph people, you have to get releases. And at this point, like, you know, you either have to pay a model or convince your friends to do it. And your friends probably know well enough not to be featured in a, um, <laughs> in a, in a stock photo whose usage is unrestricted because it'll get turned into like a, an ad for, um, you know, for hemorrhoid cream yeah, who knows goes, like all yeah. over the subway or something. Um, so I never, I never took any photos of friends, but when you sign up for iStock photo as a contributor, one of the things that it tells you is like, we have too many of these photos and we can't get enough of these photos. And the photos that they have too many of are like photos of hands. Photos of like the inside of your office, basically like the sorts of things that when you're holding a camera and you you you're just like looking around for things to point it at. Yeah, like like we have we have too many photos that look like they were taken for a high school, you know, photography class and they're like a little moody and they like explore the lines of hands or something. They have not enough photos of like cheerful, diverse groups of business people celebrating business success <laughs> because it's just it's a huge headache to take those pictures because you have to hire like you know six models and get them to sign releases and then rent a an office 
and have them sit in a conference room and put a PowerPoint presentation up on the wall and like point at it and smile and like have them hand each other files and documents and smile and folders so, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, have them give each other high fives. We could totally uh, do that around the OATV office and make, make some extra cash. On the side. <laughs> New revenue oh, streams. We totally could. Yeah. Every time, every time someone comes in to record a podcast episode, we're going to make them do two or three stock photos. Can we take your uh, picture wide? Don't don't worry about it. Yeah, no, okay. Exactly. Just yeah. sign just sign this. It's for the podcast. Yeah. Cool. Uh yeah. So that was that was interesting. That was a good it's a good click spiral segment. I always like these. Um if if you guys, the listeners, have any spirals that you've been clicking into lately, please drop us a line at hardware at O'Reilly.com so we can check it out and possibly even discuss it on a future program. All right. That brings us to the end of the episode with Catherine Haig. Catherine, if people want to find you online, uh, where is your presence? They can find me at katherinehaig.com or femalefunders.com. Terrific. And um, you can also check out Catherine's upcoming live training uh, through O'Reilly, which happens on March 30th. That's a Wednesday. It goes most of the day, and it's going to talk about everything that you need to know to raise seed funding. If you have a you know an idea for a business or something, um, or you're, you're tossing around an amazing technology and you want to turn it into a business, this would be a great place to start. Introduction to Seed Financing for Entrepreneurs on March 30th. Look for the link in the show notes or just uh, Google Catherine Haig Seed Funding and, um, and you'll find it. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was a lot of fun and I appreciate uh, being on the show. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>